So let me summarize now uh, before we move on to actually look at the actual promises of the kingdom of God in the future and what happens when Jesus comes back. Um, before we do that, um, to try to summarize how um, there came into the church an anti-Semitic spirit. And as that came into the church and influenced the teaching and the doctrines of the church, a new theology came into being called replacement theology. So no longer did Christians believe that we are grafted into Israel. Instead, the idea is God's done with Israel. Now it's us, we're the church. And then what I'm saying is all of the alternatives to the original apostolic understanding of the end times, all of the, the variations that the church has come up with, have actually come out of that replacement theology. So original apostolic teaching came out of the Jewish nation and Jewish prophecy. But then this other idea came in and now I'm saying it's time to replace replacement theology. And if we replace that and go back to the original, then we're going to have to leave behind our left behind theology and all of the other eschatologies that came out of that because now we're going back to the original grounding in Jewish prophecy that was so important for Jesus and for the apostles, also for the apostolic fathers of the church. So back to the first three centuries where the leaders of the church were trying so hard to keep their doctrines and their teachings the same, keep it pure, keep it right, what it originally was under Jesus. Part of what uh, uh, bothers me so much about the way, the way we treat end time promise uh, in, our, in our present generation is that it seems to me the focus is all wrong. It, it's as though we are uh, convinced that the end of the age is going to be full of all sorts of evil, that the evil is going to bring on the wrath of God, and the only hope we have in the midst of all this is that Jesus would just remove us from it because there's nothing else left to look forward to. Well, that is simply not the teaching of the New Testament. That is the way we've twisted the teaching of the New Testament. That's the way we've interpreted the teaching of the New Testament. But that is not apostolic teaching. With apostolic teaching, the blessed hope is the return of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom. The, the blessed hope is not that he's going to come and lift us all up out so we don't have to go through any tribulation at the end of the age. So what we want to do is to, to recover what the original hope was. All right. For example... If you look at the book of Revelation, what you have in that revelation is seven distinct visions. This is not a running narrative of all the rotten things that Satan is going to do at the end of the age. It's 
it's a set of seven visions, each with a different focus. And then at the end of that vision, John is showing us the victory of Christ. You look at these visions and that's what you'll see. Once, once it's pointed out to you, that's what you'll see. The, the focus is on the victory of Christ. It's not on all the evil things that Satan is going to be allowed to do because he knows his time is near. So let's look at what happens after the victory. Let's look at the fulfillment of the promise. All our prayers that we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why are we praying these prayers every time we say the Lord's Prayer? If we don't actually think that it's going to happen, if, if we don't think that there's anything to it, it's just a religious exercise, we go through the motions of the Lord's Prayer, and then we're done and we can go home and watch football. No, I'm saying the prayers are, are necessary and important, piling up bowls of goodness, bowls of wrath, bowls of goodness. And in the end, it will be the triumph of Christ. You can count on it. Look at it like Jesus was, was speaking in uh, John 16, 21, where he's talking about the way it is in labor and childbirth. A woman goes through travail. She's in pain. She cries out in pain because uh, she, she, she can't help it. The pain is so great. Yet, when it comes time for the baby to be born, when she's got the baby in her arms, she's able to rejoice and she's ready to have another baby and go through it all because the result is worth the struggle that she went through. Now, Jesus was telling that little uh, parable or story uh, about the crucifixion leading to the resurrection. And, and Jesus is saying to his disciples, we are going to have to go through a terrible thing. But when we get to the end of it, you'll see it was all worthwhile. And that's the point he's making about the, his first coming, his first experience of this childbirth-like uh, crucifixion. Well, the same attitude exactly is required as we move into the second coming. He says in Matthew 24, it's going to be travail. The whole world is going to go into travail, but go through it, come out on the other side, and it's, then you're, you're going to see it's all worthwhile. It's been worthwhile going through the whole thing, worthwhile because his kingdom is coming. And that's what we want to try to look at in the next several teachings, what his kingdom looks like. Um, one of the, the big uh, issues that I find most people are, are struggling with when they, when they hear the message that we're going to go through the tribulation period um, they, they believe that we are not destined for wrath. That's what it says. Uh, right there in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says we are not destined for wrath. And so to them, that's the evidence of this um, pre-tribulation rapture of the church. 
What I want to say, though, is that all of the apostles gained their hope not by dreaming up new doctrines the way John Nelson Darby did, but by going back to the Old Testament. Okay, so they're rooted in the prophets. They're rooted in what God has already revealed through the prophets. And we're talking about the Jewish prophets here. So now instead of saying, well, all that, that's just Jewishness, we're going to go back and we're going to realize that Jesus himself said, he did not come to do away with the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Uh, down to the last detail, that's what he said. Or uh, the Apostle Paul, Romans 1, verses 1 and 2, how the gospel that he preaches is really based on and grows out of the prophets. These are the Jewish prophets. Or Peter, who in Second Peter talks about how the prophets were not just giving their own opinions, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter is honoring that and saying, we haven't moved beyond this. We're still rooted there. That's where we get the gospel from. And so that's, that's what our position is now on all of these things. We look back, for example, at um, Isaiah 20... Six, Isaiah 26 and verse 20. And this is where Paul got the idea that we are not destined for wrath. It goes back and is rooted in Isaiah now. Okay, so let's read this, which is specifically talking about the end time and the outpouring of God's wrath just before the coming of the king. And so it's a direct promise related to what we're talking about. And he says, go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed upon her. She will conceal her slain no longer. In other words, God is going to provide places for us to find refuge, and he will ask us to go into those places. Some of the prophets of today are talking about cities of refuge. That's a biblical term that is, it goes back to the Old Testament where God provided his royal priesthood with cities and that was where they were to live and, uh, and prosper. Um, and, and so the, the concept of cities of refuge is being revived today to describe these places that God is going to, to build in which we can escape his wrath. Because truly, we are not destined for wrath. That is absolutely right. It's the word of God. It's the word of God. Um, I like the way Dan Juster puts it in this book, Passover, the key that unlocks the book of Revelation. Dan Juster is a Messianic Jewish scholar and leader. And his basic concept here is that the book of Revelation 
is based on and harkens back to the book of Exodus, where God is pouring out his wrath on the Egyptians, but then he has a separate place that is designated for his people. So we read about that, for example, in Exodus chapter 8, and this is verse 22. And uh, it, it relates to the plague of flies. And, but it's, this is only one example. It, the whole of, of the Passover experience, all of the, the judgments that God poured out on the Egyptian in, in, that, in that case, are a type, they're a picture that we are to look at in preparation for what's going to happen at the end of the age. And this is what he says, But on that day I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. And, and that's the heart of the matter. It's, it's God makes the distinction. There's a separating out. And he deals one way with one group of people who have rejected him and are working for the enemy. And he deals another way with the people who are praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's two totally different groups of people. And we are not destined for wrath if we follow Jesus. I like a way another person put it uh, in my acquaintance uh, where I live, he said he sees it as a Rehoboth. Um, he feels like our area is going to be a Rehoboth. So a Rehoboth goes back to Isaac's experience, trying to find a place for his family to live. And uh, Isaac dug a well, but then he found that uh, the, the people of the land opposed their living there, and they they warred against them, so they chased them off, and had, they had to go somewhere else, dig another well, and then those people chased them off, and finally they went to a third place, and they called it Rehoboth because they dug a well, and nobody chased them off, and there was space. There was space to live. There was a Rehoboth there, and so that's a kind of a picture, again, from the Old Testament that we believe that God is going to, to put his people in spaces like that. There's going to be cities of refuge, there's going to be Goshens, there's going to be Rehoboths. And that is a much more scriptural, um, evident promise of God than this other one about a pre-tribulation rapture, which is not actually mentioned anywhere in the Bible. Finally, I, I've, I've been looking at the actual promise of the, um, the rapture of the church. And uh, it, it really means something other than escape from trouble. Um, and so uh, let me refer you back again to this book, A Case for Historic Premillennialism, and right now to an article by uh, Craig Blomberg, who's the editor of this, but he wrote one of the articles. And his point is that the word apontesis, which means rapture, actually comes from a different context. 
in the original Greek and what the apostles meant by it than what we have taken it for today. Let me just read this section here. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, the sole text in Scripture referring to the catching up of believers to meet the Lord in the air. There the term apontesis is used for the meeting with Christ, a term regularly used in Hellenistic Greek to refer to a welcoming party leaving a city or a house in order to go down the road to meet an honored guest, visiting dignitary or triumphant military leader, and form an escort party to accompany the person back to his home or town. This is exactly how the term is used in its two other New Testament occurrences, when the wise bridesmaids meet the bridegroom and escort him back to his home for the continuation of the wedding party and the new couple's first night there. And that's in Matthew 25, 6. And when believers from Rome travel south on the Appian Way to meet up with Paul and escort him back to the capital, that's in Acts 28, 15. And so his point is, that's the same meaning that the rapture has in 1 Thessalonians. You see, those who have been watchmen on the wall see the bridegroom, see the king coming, and they are permitted by the Lord to go to him and escort him back to the earth where he will be the triumphant king. What a beautiful picture this is. I mean, to me, it's much more relevant and uh, wonderful that we believe the truth than to try to come up with this other twisted idea uh, that the, uh, the rapture of the church is just escaping trouble. Uh, we uh, who are on the earth at the end will be empowered by the Lord. He's coming through in the air. He's coming in the clouds with power and glory, with all his holy ones, but we who are on the earth will be allowed to meet him in the air and escort him back to earth. Can you imagine that picture? But that is the original picture that the apostles intended with the concept of the rapture. And so uh, we're going to look at the rapture. We're going to look at the coming kingdom that follows the rapture during the, the next several teachings. What I just want to summarize here by saying is that the kingdom of God should be always in focus whenever we're looking at the end times. We should not be looking at judgments. We should not be looking at wars. We should not be looking at Satan. We ought to be looking at the triumph of the king because that's what the apostles did.